Hi, welcome to GRC and Me, a podcast where we interview governance, risk, and compliance thought leaders on hot topics, industry-specific challenges, trends to learn more about their methods, solutions, and outlook in the space, and hopefully have a little fun doing it. I'm your host, Chris Clark. Uh, with me today is Tony Martin Vagie, a staff information security risk engineer at Netflix, where he's responsible for leading its information security and technology risk management strategy and vision. He is also the co-chair of the San Francisco chapter of the Fair Institute and a professional speaker on top the topics of risk management, cyber risk quantification, information security, and decision science. Welcome, Tony. Hi, Chris. Could you tell us more about yourself and you know what's your journey been like in GRC? Yes, I'd be happy to. Thank you for that warm welcome and thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I really enjoyed the um, podcast I was on with you all. I think it was last year. Time sure flies. Um, but I'm thrilled to be back. So thank you again. Um, okay, my journey in GRC, it's long. It's been a long journey. I started out in IT, like a lot of people in, in the GRC space. Started out many years ago um, doing just about everything you could possibly imagine that one could do in IT. Everything from help desk, um, running cabling through attics and getting covered in fiberglass, um, setting up servers, um, learning how to code, um, websites, everything, all of that and everything in between. And I decided that I really needed a career change. I just, I just wasn't really feeling personally fulfilled with um, that type of IT work. So I wanted a career change, but I didn't want to throw away all that knowledge, all the certifications that I had earned. Um, so I decided information security, that this would be a really good segue into a career change. I could still use the old knowledge that I had, um, but hopefully transition into something that was more fulfilling. Um, I started moving into information security. And with that, I found out quickly, you really have to find a focus. Um, do you want to be a pen tester, a red teamer, blue teamer? Do you want to work on business continuity? Do you want to be um, on the incident response team? There's a, you know, a lot of focus areas. And I chose risk management. And the reason why I chose risk management is really two reasons. Um, I was lucky to have a really good mentor early, early off. Um, he was brilliant in the field of risk management, cyber risk management and technology risk management, taught me everything I needed to know back when I was starting out. And um, he's the first person that connected something for me. Um, I have a degree in economics and he connected that for me. He's like, listen, it's the same thing. Um, calculating the interest rate on a bond, the future interest rate on a bond or future um, return on investment for um, investments. Um, that's the same thing as a risk assessment. You're just figuring out return or your losses and then determining the probability of occurrence and then filling in the blanks from there. So he really connected that for me that I could reuse that in this new GRC space that I was in. And then honestly, um, the rest is history. Here I am. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. That's um, that's a super cool path. Like from, I mean, I'd be even interested in how you went from like economics and IT <laughs> in that. <laughs> it was the early two thousands, and if you had a pulse and you knew what a computer was, you could get a job in IT. Fascinating. And you can make a lot of money doing it. Yeah. <laughs> what um you know you, i mean i appreciate you sharing like i one thing that has come up pretty frequently is the power of, of a good mentor in people's careers where um i guess what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten on your career from your mentor from others like what, what advice would you give to people starting out in risk management network network it's so simple we hear it all the time and I feel like there's nothing more important than that. If I look back at my career, 
and think of all the crappy jobs that I've had with horrible bosses or bad work-life balance or just stuff I didn't enjoy, or it wasn't a good match for me personally or my skills. Those were all jobs that I got off of LinkedIn or job boards or, you know, just stuff like that. Um, and all the best jobs I've ever had have all been through networking, people that knew me, people that I knew, people that were able to take my skills, my personality, what I bring to the table and match it up with people that are looking for that. And so many doors have opened up for me with networking, um, not only jobs, but also friendships, opportunities to speak at conferences and share my knowledge, um, both mentor-mentee relationships. I've been able to be a mentor to people entering the field, which has been incredibly enriching for me. But I think everybody still needs mentors, even people late in their career. So I've been able to hook up with really good mentors still. And it's really important to me to have those types of relationships. Um, serving on volunteer positions for, um, you know, for various information security or GRC groups um, throughout the world. Um, it's just been really enriching. And I owe all of that to networking. And it's hard for me because um, like a lot of people, I think everybody has social anxiety to some degree. I definitely do. I don't find networking easy. So it's something I have to intentionally do. I have to set an intention to do it, set a goal, and just go out there and take a deep breath and do it. But um, it's been really enriching for me. So that's really the best piece of career advice I've ever received. It's simple. We hear it all the time, but it's just fundamental. I appreciate sharing that. Yeah. I originally thought you were making uh, an IT joke, like build a network. Networking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, um, but to your point, yeah, like it's, that's really powerful. And um, it's, it's good to know that I think there's some, because I feel similarly, like I'm inherently like an introvert, meeting new people is always tough, but like, when there is that intentionality behind it and there's like a almost you know going in that it's the there's a goal it's it's really powerful i thank you again for sharing uh before we jump into like the like risk management topics i kind of always like starting with something we call like risk in real life you know so better or for worse we are all risk managers um and you know we think about mitigation and transferring risk and avoiding risk and all that uh whether we think so or not. So before we started recording, I had talked a little bit about how I, I, my wife still cuts my hair. I'll let uh -huh. anyone who actually watches this decide whether or not she did a good job. But one of the things that I always do to kind of like mitigate the risk of, you know, her being an architect and not a hairstylist is that um, I always plan or ask for a haircut um, when I know that I don't have to like travel or be anywhere other than Zoom for at least two weeks. And so I like have a way almost of, you know, if there's a little snip or there's something kind of off or the line is, you know, like I know that it's it's not gonna be too noticeable for at least a little while. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you have any example that you'd like to share. I like that. So you're mitigating risk. You're implementing a risk response decision tree. You mitigate it by forecasting ahead let's see what I have going on and then asking for the haircut to give you time. Yeah. I like that. Um, I do, I do a lot of that too. Um, I can't help it. I've been a risk analyst for so long that I, I, I literally can't help it every single day I'm doing risk analyses, whether it's in my head. Sometimes I break out the Monte Carlo simulations though, just in real life. Um, I think I, I want to, I'm going to give you an example, but I think before I do that, I need to, I need to describe just my philosophy on risk or risk management or risk analysis. Um, I think that those of us in cybersecurity, I've also seen this, you know, with ERM folks or operational risk folks, we often misunderstand the purpose of risk management. Um, it's not, it doesn't exist to identify the things that can go wrong and point it out to people, even though oftentimes that is the outcome. 
risk management exists to identify trade-offs between benefits and risks and bad things that can happen and give leadership decision makers enough information so that they can decide the best, most cost-effective and safest path forward. It's a balance between risk-seeking and risk-avoidance. Risk is good. It's not inherently bad. We all think it's bad. Risk isn't bad. Risk is good. Risk enables us to achieve objectives. Think about getting in a car. Just driving is one of the riskiest activities that a human can do. It really is. It's it's up there. It's up there with... Um, it's riskier than skydiving or bungee jumping. It's it's really risky. But why do we do it? We do it because we need to achieve an objective. That objective is getting to work, getting to the grocery store, dropping kids off at the school. So there's there's a reason that we drive. It gives us something. It's good. It gives us reward. So that's risk-seeking behavior. Now we need to mitigate that with the other side, with things that can go wrong. So how can you mitigate the risk of driving? Well, you can wear a seatbelt. First of all, that's right off the bat. That significantly reduces your risk of death by a lot. I don't remember the figure, but a lot if you do that. Um, you can maintain your car. You can get a car with ABS brakes and airbags. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of things you can do from a, that's, that's all technology. And then you can implement process improvements. I'm using parallels for companies. Process improvements would be defensive driving. Don't be, don't be a jerk. Don't, don't zoom around. Don't speed. Um, you know, just practice those types of good driving. Um, um, habits. Now, you also want to mitigate risk because bad things are almost unavoidable, just like data breaches. Every company is going to have a data breach at least some point in their life. You're going to have a car accident. Now, how do you mitigate the risk of a car accident? You can do the aforementioned things that I mentioned, but you also need to assume that it's unavoidable. I think you, the listeners know where I'm going. You need to transfer some of that risk out car insurance. So you're not on the hook for a catastrophic cost. Um, so you can avoid some risk by um, defensive driving and you know all of that. You can mitigate some by wearing seatbelts and maintaining your car. You can transfer some risk by car insurance. So I run through these calculations all the time in my head. Um, so risk analysis, risk management exists to achieve objectives. I still want to achieve my objective, which is driving my car, but I want to do it safely. So that's, that's basically how I approach it. Um, for quantitative analysis, I actually did a quantitative analysis on my house a couple of years back. So I live in the Bay Area, and like many people, um, whether this is dumb or not, a lot of people do. I live in a liquefaction zone. Now, a liquefaction zone is when is when an earthquake occurs. Um, the the sand and the silt and the fill that your house is built on takes the characteristic of liquid during shaking of an earthquake. So it's almost like being on a waterbed when when your house starts to shake. So um, the way to mitigate that is seismic retrofitting, that if you can find the bedrock or if you can do other things to make your house more stable during that type of event, your house has a greater chance of standing. Now, I wanted to figure out the cost of that seismic retrofit versus the cost of a catastrophic earthquake and the probability of a catastrophic earthquake occurring, knowing that I was going to sell the house at some point in the future. So which one, which one should I do? So I did a pretty complicated risk analysis, risk quantification, of course, with some Monte Carlo simulations, the cost of everything. And I got a pretty good return on investment calculation of what I should do. 
Um, and it turns out it was a good choice. So during the time that I lived there, an earthquake didn't occur. So I didn't have that incident. I did put some money into earthquake retrofit, not a ton. It wasn't the kitchen sink type of repair, but it was just enough to make myself safe if the earthquake did happen. And it got me more money for when I did sell it. So um, that's just an example. Um, but as I mentioned, I, I can't help myself. I do these all the time, all day. <laughs> That's super cool. No, I I, I really appreciate you ex- kind of explaining that philosophy. I think that's it's a really kind of under- misunderstood, but, you know, using risk as a strategic decision maker and like those trade-offs is powerful. And then I, I love the quantification of that. That's such a, when you explain it like that, it seems really clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe I like I know we've talked about a lot of risk quantification pieces, but jumping now into like the actual aspect of it, like how would how would you explain risk quant to an eight year old? Okay, that's a great question. Um, and the reason why it's a great question is I have an eight year old, and CEOs sometimes act like eight year olds. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> But sometimes you have to explain things um, in very simple terms. So this is how I explained it to my kids. I have two young kids. So if you or your listeners are familiar with, so there's a jelly a jelly bean product, jelly bean line called Jelly Bellies. And they have a special product line called Bamboozled. And what Bamboozled is, is it's a box of jelly beans and each fantastic tasting jelly bean, plum, pear, peach, buttered popcorn, coconut, each of them has a completely disgusting counterpart that's indistinguishable visually from the the taste um, of the good one. So for example, um, juicy pear, its counterpart is boogers. Peach is barf. Buttered egg is rotten. Buttered popcorn is rotten egg, et cetera, et cetera. Licorice is skunk spray. So this is how I explain risk quantification. Would you like to play the game bamboozled with me? If you win, I'm going to give you $20. And you just have to guess um, which beans are the disgusting ones and which ones aren't. But of course, the only way to find out is to eat them. Now there's a catch. There's not an equal amount of gross flavors to good flavors. Some boxes have more gross flavors. Some boxes have a lot more gross flavors. Others have more good flavors. And we don't know what ratio we have in this box here. We don't know. So before we play, that's a big mystery to us. Now, this is where risk quantification comes in. Risk quantification is a tool that helps you decide whether or not to play this game with me. If you play it, you're going to eat some disgusting ones, and that's really gross. But if you play it and win, guess what? You get $20. So that's the risk-reward ratio, the risk-reward trade-off. Now, there's some fancy math that we can use to determine the probability of selecting a gross bean. Probability is just the proportion of disgusting beans to good beans. Every time you take one, you're going to find out what type of bean that you just ate. That's probability, the chances of getting a good one versus a gross one. Now, next, on the other side of risk quantification, we have magnitude. How gross would it be for you to eat a pencil shaving flavored jelly bean we call this magnitude of an event at at my job at my work um but here's the catch it's personal and it's up to you each person has a different tolerance for risk this means some people can completely take they can completely handle eating a jelly bean that tastes like earwax And other people can't take that at all. They'll throw up. And that's essentially what we're doing here. We're going to run an analysis of the proportion of disgusting beans and good beans and how 
much your personal tolerance is for um, eating those beans. And we're going to help you make a decision. We're going to help you weigh the risk reward. And that's going to help you decide whether or not to play this game with me and win $20. So that's how I explain it to kids. And they like it because sometimes I actually will play this game with them, the, the bamboozled game with the actual jelly beans. That I is incredible. Um, <laughs> like what I what a cool way to to like summarize and ex- explain that. Has anyone have have your kids ever like done that risk and said like I'm not playing this, or are they still in the so, phase of like I'll eat anything, I eat boogers anyway, like it doesn't matter. So that so I love that question because that goes to the psychology of risk. Um. Risk management is more than just statistics or business management. There's also aspects of psychology in it. Um, Are you a risk seeker or are you risk adverse? And you see this play out at companies. Different departments are risk seeking and some are more risk adverse. Some of it is tied into data, what their revenue is or what their budget is. Sometimes it's just the the person. I've noticed that I've asked this question to people, people that go to Vegas a lot, they're more risk seeking and they're more willing to accept risk. Now, the reason why I bring this up is I, every person has a different tolerance for risk and it, a lot of it depends on what you're doing, what the, what the trade-offs are. Now, my son has a very low tolerance for disgusting jelly beans and he won't play this game for me unless the reward aspect is high enough. Um, My daughter will pretty much play this game for free. For her, the reward is watching me eating the disgusting jelly beans. So that's her reward. That's her risk-reward trade-off. And then where I see parallels with this in risk management is risk tolerance and risk thresholds. Your capacity for risk is how much risk that you're able to take on I can think of that really as with my son. He has an upper capacity, an upper limit of what he's willing to do for money. Um, And then there's personal risk thresholds, risk tolerances. Um, Sometimes that depends on your mood of whether or not you want to play this game with me or, you know, maybe if we're having fun doing something else, they want to continue playing. So um, it's just a really interesting parallel for the psychology of risk and how that plays into risk seeking and risk adverse behaviors. We mentioned the Fair Institute as like kind of a you know this we we we've talked in terms of probability magnitude and I guess what are the different models of risk quantification and you, I know you co-chair the Fair Institute in San Francisco, but is there a reason that you? aligned to their model of risk quantification versus say others in any way. Yeah, I do like FAIR because it's purpose built for operational risk and cyber risk is just a sub field of operational risk. So um, it's very easy to take FAIR and extend it to many areas of your business outside of technology or cyber risk. There's also a plethora of resources out there. And that's probably the number one reason why I use FAIR is that there's tools, there's applications. Um, People have built FAIR models with Excel and R. So if you don't want to spend any money or you can't spend any money, you can do it for free. There's books, journals, blogs, talks. There's a conference. There's just so much around it. Um, It makes it really easy as a risk analyst to get started to mature your program, continue the program, train people, train your executives. Um, so it, it just has that household name within GRC. It's not the only model. Um, there's other great models out there. It's not the best. It's not the worst. It's, you know, models are neutral. Models, are, they're not good or bad. Um, but there's other stuff out there that I've used that's also really good. But that's why I use FAIR. It's just that it has that... It's easy. It's easy. It's easy to use. Now that's really helpful. I th- I think I probably am a 
you know, medium or so on the fair model. But like the, at the end of the day, it does just come down to that probability versus magnitude. And as you get more information and are able to make more decisions, you can, you can extend that out and almost like apply and translate mm-hmm. the, the more technical aspects of it into just operational risk aspects of it in its own way. Exactly. To kind of like relate this back, you know, you mentioned your career change and like getting into the cyber field. Um, and I think it's relevant to the fair aspect too, but like, how would you recommend to folks of getting started in cyber or in risk quantification? Like what's the first step that they should start to take to either start building that for their careers or start building that within their organization? Yeah. So I have two different pieces of advice. It's one for you personally, one for people that are looking to expand their own skills to bring risk quantification into their skill set, their personal skill set. And then the second piece of advice would be for those same people to bring it into their company, their organization. Um, So if you're okay, I'd like to give both of those pieces of advice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll start out with with the risk analyst, with you personally. there's a really good book out there, um, and I, it's actually on. It's right there on the bookshelf. There's actually two copies of it because the first copy's destroyed be- from reading too many times. So it's called um, "How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk" by Douglas Hubbard and Richard Syerson. and this is the best book to get started. It's um, it's not that long of a book. It's, you know, I think it's around 300 pages. Um, you could read it in a couple weeks off and on, but this is the best way to get yourself calibrated and anchored into thinking about risk quantification. And the reason why I say that is if you're currently running a GRC program or your skill sets are in, um, the red, yellow, green risk or high, medium, low, or one, two, three, that kind of thing. Um, Switching to risk quantification requires a complete paradigm shift in your way of thinking about risk and what it means to do an analysis of risk and what the objectives are of risk. You need to change your thinking. And in order to do that, um, you need to really understand the science behind it, this is, it's rooted in science, it's rooted in math. Um, and it's, it's not new. Honestly, this is 300 years of math, of science, because cyber risk is, it's basically just actuarial science. It's what insurance companies do. It's just that you're modeling DDoS instead of earthquakes. Um, but it's essentially the same thing. It's the same math. It's the same concept, same paradigm, same metaphors. Um, so that book is where I would start. Um, now, the great thing about that is it's not fair. They teach you completely different models that you can run for free in Excel today. And you can run your own Monte Carlo simulations. You can build your own Monte Carlo you can build your own risk registers, everything, everything from scratch, a couple weekends in Excel, it's really easy to use. Um, that means if and when you decide to transition yourself to something like FAIR, you already know how the math works. You know all the formulas, the equations, what a Monte Carlo simulation is. I know that sounds intimidating. It's really not once you've built your own and figured out, oh, okay, this is all it is. Um, And once you move to FAIR, you're going to have that foundational knowledge. And then from there, just start building out your own risk models. Um, If you you can just Google it, there's free FAIR tools out there. So um, you can really start today. You can do um, a FAIR analysis on selling your house like I did or seismic retrofit. Or you can do really easy stuff like um, should I buy the mobile phone protection with T-Mobile for my brand new iPhone 15. That's a risk analysis you can do. Um, What's the probability of you breaking your phone? 
versus the cost of you breaking your phone. And that's going to tell you if you should buy insurance. Um, so there's a lot of examples that you can do, a lot of ways to get started. Um, so just from the risk analysis standpoint, the risk analyst, sorry, the risk analyst standpoint, if you're looking to expand your skill set into GRC, risk quantification in GRC, I would start with that book and then start doing exercises. And then from there, just go down Google rabbit holes. Um, you can join um, the Fair Institute. There's other organizations out there. There's conferences. There's a lot of stuff you can do. Um, so that's from the personal risk analyst standpoint. Now, organizations, what if you're in an organization and you want to get started with risk quantification, or maybe you're curious about it? Um, this is my advice. Um, and I've learned this the hard way through a lot of trial and error. Early in my career, mostly error. Now it's, I'm a little bit more successful with it because I've learned the hard way. So what you don't want to do is go in and replace the existing red, yellow, green risk program with risk quantification. As tempting as that's going to be, after you read how to measure anything in cybersecurity risk, you might have this feeling like, I, we have to do this today. We have to rip the Band-Aid off and go to risk quantification right away. Um, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Continue to run your Red, Yellow, Green program and find an ally within your company that understands the math behind risk quantification and do a one-off risk analysis just for them, just for their team. Ask them, what burning question do you have that you want answered? Oh, I, I really want to know if I can justify an additional headcount. Okay, so what risks would that additional headcount mitigate? And then do some risk quantification for that and give them some numbers to back up the data. Um, and then do another one, do another one, do another one. Get leaders that are asking for this type of analysis. It's going to do a few things. The first thing it's going to do is you are going to have the opportunity to practice your skills with risk quantification in a, um, a low stakes environment. You can make mistakes because you're just working with a team. It's not part of your official program. You're just helping them out. And the second thing it's going to do is get people talking about you, getting people talking about risk quantification. So it's a win-win for everybody. And then after you have that under your belt, then start looking at transferring your red, yellow, green program over to risk something that's quantified. Um, at my current job, this is exactly what we did. Um, I've been there for four years. Actually, yesterday was my four-year anniversary, which is uh, which is exciting for me because I really love working um, where I work. Um, Started out four years ago, red, yellow, green program was in place. We just did risk analyses. Hey, team over there, can we help you out? Team over there, let's quantify some risks. Team over there. We did about five or six of those and got a lot of people interested in the program. And then a year later, then came over and flipped the program, the risk register over to risk quantification. And then we never looked back. So very successful with that. And I really recommend that kind of baby steps um, for your listeners if they're interested in doing that. Um, I really appreciate all of that. I think um, first with the book, How to Measure Anything in Cyber, uh, the we're always looking for book recommendations. I think just how do we continue to elevate the discussion around that? But then specifically for the organization, I think I know when I think about change, I know it's painful and I know it's tough to get folks on board. And I love that concept of just like find one person, ask this one question, and then repeat that because it it takes away this big like the almost the fear of starting it and makes it really digestible and kind of like just tactical and manageable. Right, right. So maybe just to kind of ask, 
to pivot this to you. And I know I would normally ask this a little bit differently, um, but what's your burning question in risk management? What keeps you up at night? Ooh, so that's a really good question. Um, so I think I sleep pretty well at night, just generally, because I think I, just because I'm always thinking about these things. And I think that even if you don't have strong mitigations in place, you know, your Gen X listeners, if they're Gen X like me, you'll remember the cartoon G.I. Joe from the 80s. Knowing is half the battle. That was their tagline. That's how I feel about risk. Just knowing about it is half the battle. Um, I think for companies, what if there's anything that kept me up at night, it wouldn't necessarily be cyber risk. Um, cyber risk is very serious. It causes a lot of pain and suffering for people and for companies. It costs a lot of money. That's not the most existential risk for companies right now. I think that geopolitical risk right now, inflation, inflationary pressures, climate change, geopolitical instability, um, those poor pose more of an existential risk to companies today than the current cyber risk landscape that might change. Um, but just today, right now, I think that that's probably what keeps me up at night. If there was something that's going to put your company out of business, probably not going to be a ransomware attack. It's probably going to be one of those aforementioned categories that I, that I said. Um, I also think that, so that's, that's one aspect of it, but I also think that there's a more long-term aspect of existential risk to companies that does touch cyber risk, does touch technology risk, but it's, it might not be what you think. It's not ransomware or phishing. It's not using the right technology at the right time. It's not exploiting technology. Um, and I think that that poses an existential risk to long-term, it poses a long-term existential risk to companies more than any, you know, like DDoS attacks, um, that the technology landscape is changing very rapidly. You have to stay two steps ahead of it and two steps ahead of your competitors. And if you're not, your long-term prospects, I think don't look very bright. Um, so that's, if there's something that's going to keep me up at night, that would be one of the number one things. It's not exploiting the right technology to the right degree. That's fascinating. And not to like, maybe I'm projecting here, but it, it also feels like some of these are also probably the hardest to quantify because they're so existential. Like I, I couldn't measure geopolitical risk because that's such a large umbrella. Like how do you sequence that down to like a tactical risk to get people to like mitigate or transfer in some way. Yeah. What's interesting about that is it's both fortunate and unfortunate. We have a pool of data to pick from. That's the fortunate part is we do have data. The unfortunate part is that means that companies have failed because of geopolitical instability. Um, probably not in the United States we would find these things, but you could look in Ukraine, you could look at some places in Eastern Europe, um, two decades ago, three decades ago, you could look at Latin America. Um, and what you could do is take a look at how geopolitical instability or geopolitical issues, problems, monetary pressures, inflationary pressures, what those do to companies. And you can look at those companies and find out how, where, and why they failed due to those external pressures. And from there, you can get a pretty good idea of what those types of situations might look like, how they might come to fruition for uh, a company in the United States. Um, it's not going to be exactly the same because we have different governments. We have different um, protections in place. It's just not the same. But it's adjacent. You can get an idea of just adjacent risk that happens at other places and try to extrapolate some of that and try to understand how that would happen here. So if 
if I was tasked with quantifying the risk of just say poor monetary policy from our government, um, how that might pose an existential risk to an American US-based company, there's a lot of examples of other companies abroad in which poor monetary policy caused huge problems for those companies. I would just start to list out those things, those causes and effects, and figure out, okay, what are the chances of that happening here? And then that's the beginnings of a risk quantification exercise for that. Yeah, like thinking about it in the US is very different than thinking about it. Like that does, just because there isn't a data set here, doesn't mean there isn't a data set. Um, so, we talk, so that's what keeps you up at night. I guess um, to kind of flip that, what are the risks that you think companies aren't talking about enough? It's a great question. So there's three risks that just immediately popped in my head. And there's one, one of them, I'll mention it first, and that's one that everybody knows about. Um, and we're not talking about it because we're sick of it. And it's the most boring, unsexy risk anybody could mention. And that's fishing. And I know it's it just it feels dumb saying that because um like you would think to yourself, haven't we solved that? That's been around for how many decades has that been around for? And haven't we solved for that? And the sad answer is we haven't. And I feel like it still poses a major cybersecurity risk. It should be for most companies, if not you know, the vast majority of companies that should be in your top five, if not top three cyber risks. Um, and we're just we're just bored of talking about it. So um, that's that's one thing that um, I would put at top of the list. The other one is um, artificial intelligence. It's AI. Now I'm going to flip the script. It's probably not what your listeners are thinking. Most people are thinking AI. Um, putting our sensitive data in it and then data gets leaked or it gives us bad information and we use that and our company suffers because it gave us false information. Um, or maybe some listeners might be thinking Terminator rising the machines. It's not any of those. It's not using it, believe it or not. That's what I feel like a big risk is. It's not exploiting AI while your competitors are. Um, so we, and by we, I mean all of us, the entire GRC space, we need to figure out how to enable our companies to harness and exploit AI in a way that's safe and quick. We got to get on this quickly. If you don't, your competitors will, and you'll lose competitive advantage pretty quickly. And that could be an existential risk for your company. So that's a risk I feel like we're not talking about is not exploiting AI and GRC teams not providing guidance to their leadership to use this safely, but quickly, rapidly. Um, and the last thing that popped in my mind was um, new SEC guidance that's been released fairly recently on materiality of risk. Um, the only way to comply with this is to bring risk quantification into your GRC program. I feel like the only way to do this. You're never, if you have a, a serious event in which you have to personally go to the SEC and explain what happened, you're, you're never gonna be able to justify what you did by saying, we assess the risk of data breach. It was yellow, therefore it wasn't material. It, that's not going to fly saying it was yellow, it was green, it was red, it was high, it was low, it was medium. That's never going to fly. They're going to come back and say, what's yellow? Yellow relative to what? I see you have two yellows. If you add up two yellows, what does that make? Dark yellow or is that red? You know, it's just not going to work. So the only way to do it is risk quantification. We're not talking about this enough. Um, somebody, the first company that gets burned with this because they don't have risk quantification and they get in trouble with the SEC. They have a material event and they weren't reporting it. 
that's going to be a wake up call for all of us. It's fascinating. I, uh, yeah, the fishing one just, that's, that's a kicker, but it is, it's just an interesting one because I mean, to go back to the psychology of risk, like it does inherently rely on humans. It's not technological. It's not process. It is purely a, what's the weakest point in your system. And typically that's the human aspect of it in some way. On the topic of AI, I think it's it's a you know you and our our chief product officer can can chat sometime because he agrees. Like the two things is like there's risk in not doing it, move safe but move move fast. I like um, are you how are you moving safe but fast with AI? I think that companies need to have guardrails in place um, that provide guidance to to users, to employees, that that really describes the risk and reward of using AI. So obviously, if you have a really good use case, you want to exploit this quickly, but we need to proceed cautiously and really understand the limitations of AI as it exists today. Um, some of the biggest problems is just false information. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of examples. I I asked it for a profile on me, and ChatGPT didn't know who I was, but the bio that it created, it knew I was in cyber risk, and it knew that I spoke and did writing in various places. And then when I asked it for references and sources, it was completely fabricated. the The books that I've written, I haven't written a book. But the books that it said I've written, it's completely fabricated. The journals I wrote for, the conferences I've spoken at, um, I was really surprised that it made something up that was so, so out of left field. So there's a big cautionary tale for it. But if you know how to use it and you provide those guardrails to people, to users, then I think your company would be well positioned to exploit it. It's interesting you say that. One of the first conversations we had around AI, but it's probably a few months ago, his name's Dorian. He was talking about that and how um, they were starting to quote legal cases or like asking AI. And basically, AI was kind of like an eight-year-old. It just, it lied because it like, <laughs> like well, if you like do that and then you're like, well, where did you get that? It will make up sources. And then you can, if you keep <laughs> it, it will eventually admit like, oh, I, I made it up in a way. And it's a... Uh, it's fascinating that that's like, in a way, is a risk in using AI that it can do that. Exactly. You know, we talk about AI is one, one thing. We've talked about risk quant. Are there any other tools that you think risk managers should have in their toolkit, like with working in the business? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that I'm going to mention a couple soft skills and then a couple of actual tools. So the thing that I've learned throughout my career is that everybody likes to receive data differently. They interpret data differently. And that goes to the risk communication skill that every risk analyst should have. Um, it, this doesn't even have to be risk quantification, even if your program is uh, red, yellow, green, high, medium, low risk. If you start to dig in, you'll notice that leadership interprets these risks differently, even more so with red, yellow, green risk, because it's so open to interpretation. Um, so the thing that I've learned is good risk communication and good use of visuals. And I think that it's worth taking time to read up on this, how to communicate data how to communicate analysis and how to do it in a way that's not biased or leading readers to a particular conclusion, either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, I think that as risk analysts, we need to be um, as unbiased as we can when we communicate risk results. We really don't wanna push people toward a certain outcome. We're here to provide data you make the decision, you make the, you decide the outcome. So that would be one soft skill as risk communication. Another one would be, I just touched on that briefly, is just visualization and presenting data. Um, so those are two tools that 
I think are really essential um, for, you know, for um, a risk analyst. Now, on the tool side, the actual application side, I think that the GRC analysts of the future needs to have really strong engineering skills in the sense that they can spin up hive databases or um, MySQL databases or whatever it is with Python, Python scripts, R code, maybe Tableau dashboards, um, R dashboards, whatever it is. And that's not for, you know, not for your risk analysis or for your business, but to store and keep track of the mountain of data that we're all going to be collecting and and throughout our jobs. So I think that that type of engineer skill um, is not something, it's not a muscle that we have all collectively exercised, but I think that we're need, we need to if we're going to want to stay relevant. Um, we don't have to be experts, but just a little bit of coding. If you're good with R, that's great. If you know a little bit of Python, you're going to make, your resume is going to really, really look good. Um, especially if you can combine that with um, with some statistical skills. You know how to do Monte Carlo simulations. You know how to draw all different types of graphics for the same risk. Um, so that, I think those are the tool, the tools of the future, the skill sets of the future. Awesome. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. That's, um, it is interesting how much, how, you know, the volume of data is going to change everything. You, um, you mentioned a little bit about like risk managers need to be unbiased in the way they present their problems. Do you view that differently from like, you know, here's the data you make the decision versus here's the data you make the decision and here's our recommendation. Like, is there a place for risk managers to make recommendations around that data for the business? Or is that, does it almost step away from the pure risk management of just providing and then letting them make that decision? There is space for that. And I do make recommendations whenever I do a risk analysis, but it has to be data-driven. It has to be rooted in something real. Let me give you an example. So you do a risk analysis, it's all data-driven. You determine the probability of an event occurring and if and when it does occur, the magnitude, how much does it hurt? That's gonna give you a set of numbers. You're gonna know how much a single incident costs within a range, of course, and now you're gonna annualize it. Um, you're gonna also have a range, your annualized loss expectancy. From there, hopefully your company should have risk tolerance, risk capacity, risk threshold, uh, risk appetite. You should have all of those numbers. Now you can take your risk analysis, compare it against those numbers. Now you can start to make recommendations. Does my risk exceed the company's capacity to take on risk? It doesn't. So my recommendation here with this is, it would appear as if we have enough cash reserves to cover this risk if and when it does happen. If it, if it exceeds that capacity, your recommendation is this exceeds our stated capacity for risk. I didn't create that risk capacity, leadership did. Um, so you all gave me that number. I recommend that we immediately reduce risk or by cyber insurance or increase our cash reserves. We need to do something immediately. Um, now you should have risk tolerance or risk thresholds. This could be company-wide or it could be by product or by department. Um, that's the next step in your decision tree. Does it exceed the capacity for or the threshold for risk or tolerance for risk? If it does, I recommend that you, you have to mitigate it. And um, we should have a really good idea of what controls mitigate the risk during your risk analysis you should have revealed some of the weak spots hey we don't have any logging at all you should have found that i recommend you implement logging you can run another risk analysis that shows a hypothetical future with logging turned on if you turn logging on and real-time monitoring you could reduce risk by 25 percent. so you're still making recommendations but it's unbiased it's um, it's data driven and you're not putting 
your your personal beliefs into it, which I see all too often, unfortunately, um, scaring people, um, which I don't like to do. So I think there's definitely room for that. No, that's helpful. And I think it's it's almost a reframing of it, too, of like you're not recommending a different approach to like the risk threshold or the risk appetite. You're you're recommending action or you're recommending some other areas that may overall change the approach to risk, but doesn't inherently change their decision making power for the risk itself. So we talked about, you know, kind of like your views of risks and, you know, kind of like internal risks to your organization. Um, maybe just taking that one step further out to like, how do you think about third party risks and the ways like these other partners or vendors introduce risk into your environment? Is that, does that change? Like, how do you approach risk you can't control? That's really hard. Um, and I think that this is my hot take on that space. Um, I think that the current way that that we, by we, I mean GRC analysts, GRC professionals, the way we approach third-party risk, I think it's probably, it's mostly broken. The reason why I say it's broken is we have an over-reliance on these questionnaires, whether it's a SIG questionnaire or something custom-made, you send it out to a company, they fill it out, you bring it in, they spend days filling it out, you spend days analyzing it, and then that's usually it. It's but it's honor system. And the people that are filling it out at these companies generally don't have intimate knowledge of some of the questions that they're answering. Um, they don't know the exact level of logging and real-time monitoring on the system that you're considering purchasing or you know, getting services from. Um, so these questionnaires are mostly honor system based. You ask for a series of policies or standards or procedures, they come back and you just use it as a checklist. You have no idea whether or not they're actually following it or not. The questionnaire says, do you follow your information security policy? You can click on yes, sure. It doesn't really mean anything. Now having a SOC 2 report, um, that helps a little bit, that type of third party audit. But if any of you have been through a SOC audit at your company, like if you've had a SOC auditor come in to issue a SOC report for you, you know the problems with that. You know that you know that you can do pretty much anything to get yourself ready for a SOC audit. And the minute the auditor leaves, you go back to your own, your own bad habits. Um, and also you can limit the scope yourself. You set your own scope for your own audit. Let's look at this over here. Don't look at that over there. Um, so a good GRC analyst might find those gaps, but you also might not. You might not even know to look for it. So a lot of it is honor system based. And I think that there's just a lot of uncovered risk there for companies. Um, and it's hard. It's a really hard space. And I mean this honestly, my heart goes out to my GRC um, brothers and sisters that are in charge of third-party audits. It's you're in a hard, hard job. I was just going to say my uh, my my poor tender GRC heart is is breaking a little, Tony. I know. Yeah. <laughs> what um, I mean, like, so I mean, that's I mean, it makes sense that that's kind of like maybe one of the issues around it. Like, what would you change in the way we approach those? I don't know. I don't know. I think we. We probably need to recognize that there is an issue, that there is a problem here, and put our collective best minds together and try to figure out how to do this. But there won't, there's not really going to be an impetus to change this um, unless we're all motivated to do it. Um, something bad has to happen, or there has to be some type of government regulation, like like the SEC guidance that I was talking about earlier, that's going to force risk quantification in the next couple of years. There's a lot of us that have been sounding this alarm for a decade, more than a decade now, about the need to move to risk quantification. Um, but we didn't. Um, collectively, we didn't. Um, so it might take something like that to fix third-party risk. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see 
to your point, I, I mean, with the SEC piece on whether or not the, you know, we talk about the, you know, incident, cyber incident materiality, if like, in a way, though, it like does impact your data and like could be material if, a, if not you, but your third party is breached in some, some way. Does that in a way even become a, does the same law and the same regulation become its own forcing function for changing that third party risk arena? It should. It should. Yeah. It should eventually start to push change. I think I might have mentioned this earlier. It's going to take that first company to get burned. And then we're all going to wake up, hopefully. I'll be interested to see, even if there's like different, <laughs> not to throw these future companies under the bus, but if there's like, you know, it's the first company that gets burned from not having cyber risk and then, or like risk one. And then the next company that gets burned from not having third party risk. And then the next one that doesn't, it gets burnt because they don't have a good like physical security system and then servers. And, you know, so be interested to see if like it forces one change, no change, multiple change. So I guess we'll see. <laughs> a good question. I'm curious. I'm really curious how long it's going to take. Yeah. Um, so those are all, all kind of like the, the, the meat of the questions that I had. Um, any like last thoughts before we jump into risk or that? No, just, you know, my, my final thought just, you know, on this topic is just stay curious, just, you know, stay curious about risk quantification and analysis and data and numbers. And don't assume that anyone has the right answer. Find the answer for yourself. Um, and that's really the best way to, you know, really advance your career and, and build your skills. I appreciate that. I love, I love that value, breaking curiosity. Yeah. So <laughs> going to move to a little bit more of the fun part of it, of uh, risk or that, where we kind of just ask which, which riskier scenario would you prefer? Uh, one piece of pop culture that is really, I think, focused on technology risk in its own way is uh, Black Mirror, where, you know, they look at technology and potential negative effects on society. I'd be interested, um, in your opinion, what is like the riskiest scenario in Black Mirror? Oh, that's a good question. And I love that show because I love hate it. I love it because it's so compelling. It's so, it's one of the best shows that I've watched in that genre since Twilight Zone, but I hate it because it just hits so close to home. It's just, oh no, you know, <laughs> but um, I think my favorite episode is probably from season four. It's called Hang the DJ. And um, this is my favorite riskiest episode. Um, it's about a dystopian future in which people are forced to use a dating app. And the dating app kind of has almost this godlike aura in in the episode and two people get matched up but they know that something's off and continually they just have this feeling that something's off they decide to escape to break free of this big brother dating app At the end of the episode um it's revealed that the two people are living in a computer simulation and those weird feelings that they have are just thousands of simulations of their dating lives um, it kind of reminds me of Monte Carlo simulation because you're running thousands of simulations of company years to try to find out in which company year you get a data breach and how many of those years, you know, you get a data breach. That's all Monte Carlo simulation is. But the reason why I find this the riskiest episode is it reminds me that there is a non-zero chance that we're all living in a computer simulation. I think it's probably not, probably not the case, but you can't say that anything's impossible. So there's a non-zero chance. Um, so this is actually called the simulation hypothesis, the idea that we're living in a computer simulation. So it's worth a read for your listeners. Um, there's a really good Wikipedia article on it. Um, it'll give you a nightmare if you don't have those already. <laughs> I honestly, I, I would not have probably guessed that episode. So I appreciate that. I was going to guess the one with the like the metal dogs that run around because. Oh, yes. But <laughs> maybe that's, that's a good a more like tangible of a of here or visceral. <laughs> um, so 
appreciate that. That uh, and maybe now more of a question is like, which show would you find riskier to be on? Um, the Great British Bake Off, where everyone is a wonderful baker. They're very kind though. Or nailed it, where everyone is a poor baker, and it's mostly you know you're going to get made fun of in some way. I love that question. Um, two of my favorite shows on Netflix. Um, I have to think about my personal risk tolerance and my risk factors that would contribute to each of those shows. So I'm not a great cook. I'm not a great cook. I don't like being made fun of, but I have a thick skin. But I want to win. I I love winning. I really do. So I think I'm going to choose Nailed It because they're amateurs. We're all outside of our comfort zone. I think I have a greater chance of winning, of success. Um, Great British Bake Off, I'm almost guaranteed for failure. Um, so there's my risk-reward um, decision right there. I choose Nailed It. That's that's fair. I'd be going for the Hollywood handshake as much as possible. I knew no, that wouldn't happen with with Queen Fish Um, so last one, and this one I think is really relevant given that you said like fishing is still super relevant for organizations. Um, do you think cyber risk is more likely to originate um outside of an organization, say like a, a like a specific attack, like or is it more likely to originate from inside your organization, like clicking a link, you know, malicious activity, something like that? If I'm looking at just likelihood, I'm going to choose insiders. And I think that there's there's data to back up my, my feeling. Verizon data breach investigations report. If you look at some of the data, it shows that just accidents, just untrained insiders, people pressing the wrong button, all of that leads to a lot of incidents. However, if you look at magnitude, it's probably gonna be external cyber attackers because they have that intention to steal massive amounts of data. So most of the big data breaches that we see in the news, um, or even stuff like DDoS attacks, ransomware, all that stuff, it's all from external cyber attackers because that intention is there but just by sheer numbers probably insiders but the incidents are more contained because that intention isn't there i appreciate that that insight um so those are all the questions i have any last words of wisdom for our listeners watch black mirror <laughs> <laughs> i that's one I can support. Uh, well, yeah. you know, thank you, Tony. Um, this was an awesome conversation. I really appreciate having you on the show. And thank you all for listening. Um, talk to you next time. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs>